Copy, ship boss. I got radio check. Yeah, radio is working fine. Yeah, copy all personnel. Yeah, copy, mate. The chair in the vent bag. Yeah, stitcher up there. Thanks, mate. G'day, Turnsy, my original mining bromance. How are you, mate? Ha, I'm very good, Matthew. How are you? I'm good, mate. Good. Now, you were my first on a mine site. There's a lot of people who would be jealous about that, but, uh, God, it was just love at first sight when we met at Telfer, wasn't it, mate? Well, actually, I was a bit disappointed in you. Oh, why is that? You left me, you left me hanging, mate. It was this time of year, state of origin. New South Wales were copping a flogging. I was at the Galar bar smashing beers, drowning my sorrows, and you were sitting there and you didn't come and offer support. Oh, really? Very disappointed. Oh, oh yeah, was that the bloody... That was the first day I rocked up because I was, I was doing inductions and the State of Origin was on. And then... So I went and watched it at the bloody pub by myself. And, yeah, we got flogs. I had to, had to keep it all internal because oh, well, I can't make a bloody clown of myself on me. On my first day at the pub, so yeah, she was a bit of a struggle. Anyway, that won't be happening next this year. I'm I've got it off. Anyway, I'm, I'll tell you what, I'm a bit worried about that bloody Queensland spine between Cherry Evans, Ponga, Munster, and Hunt. Oh, I'm making me bloody nervous. I'll tell you what. Yeah, I've got a little bit of faith left. Yeah, oh, we'll be right. We kind of go two in a row, I reckon. The bloody hardest thing will be. Uh, the because it's got Suncorp straight up, then we've got the game in Perth. We don't get a game in New South Wales until game three, so oh, I'm, I'm hoping we bloody get it before then. Anyway, yes, we'll be but right. I'm hoping it's a dead rubber. Oh, I fucking hope so. Yeah, anyway, so look, turns is in bloody Sydney, I'm in Perth, and we're doing this over the uh, online, and we've been fucking around for the last half an hour trying to get these microphones to work. So I'm, I'm pretty sure it's bloody working. We'll we'll see how we go. Uh, yeah, we'll bloody go go from there. Not too tech savvy, unfortunately. It's look. It looks like it's working, mate. Well, we're looking at each other. That's handy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, your headphones are a bit better than my little uh, Apple iPhone ones. Oh, bloody look the part, don't I? How professional. You do. Yeah. So, anyway, Turnsy, what are you up to these days, mate? Where, where, where are you bloody based and everything? Give us the give us the rundown. Mate, uh, moved to Sydney last uh, September. Had a bit of time off after uh, flying fly out for the last dozen or so years. And, uh, yeah, ended up pretty much well, mining in the city, really, on, uh, on one of the tunnels. Um, so, yeah, kicked off that a couple of months ago now. And uh, we started tunnelling a couple of weeks ago, actually. So pretty much from day dot at our site and uh, four years to go on the job. Yeah, right. So what's your bloody official title of this uh, tunnelling job, Turnsy? Hey, mate, I'm the safety manager, mate. Woo bloody who, hey? Safety manager, yes. That's so still in, in the safety role, <clears throat> which yeah, I uh, jumped to probably... Seven or eight years ago now, I'd say. Six, yeah. something like that. Yeah, right. So, look, for listeners that don't know Turnsy, which there wouldn't be many out there because everyone fucking knows Turnsy, uh, Turnsy was a copper prior to his mining career. Now, I won't go too much into your, into your copper life, Turnsy, but uh, tell me what this song reminds you of. Now, I'm pretty sure it's called uh, I Don't Feel Like Dancing by the Scissor Sisters, just considering your living arrangements back then when you were a copper. <laughs> it makes me feel like dancing. Actually, some horrific memories from that song. <laughs> so, uh, as you know, I lived in a share house with another four blokes. Um, it was when I got back from overseas and it was a bit of a, a rough house. Uh I was stuck in a little sunroom out the front in South Coogee. My room was probably two metres by three metres or something, barely fit a single bed in it. And because uh, everyone did shift work, there was generally at least someone on the piss every night. Uh, so it got quite rowdy. And uh, every so often <clears throat> we would have a theme song and no matter what time you heard that song, you had to stop what you were doing and come into the land room and start dancing. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, I do uh, start work at six o'clock and someone come home after a night on the cans at four o'clock and they started playing Scissor Sisters, you feel like dancing. <laughs> you had to get up dancing or if you failed to do so, uh, the repercussions were generally pretty ordinary. Yeah, right. So I'd imagine if you were bloody coppers, it would have involved taser guns and uh, bloody handcuffs, uh, just knowing all the... Uh stuff you had, uh, resources you had at your disposal in the police force? No, not quite, mate. Just probably some physical abuse, maybe <laughs> uh, constant harassment, and then you just end up getting out of bed. So I was actually pretty good at it and always got out and danced. Some of the other boys weren't so good, but I eventually got up yeah. no matter what the circumstances were. Oh, it's funny when you told me that. It just the life of a copper in the younger days sounded like the exact life of a bloody uni student back in those days. <laughs> Possibly a little bit. <laughs> uni students probably got paid more though. Oh, I don't know about bloody that. Anyway, so after your copper years, Turnsey, what how'd you get your first gig in minor, mate? What uh what pushed you over to the infamous uh Western Australia to go start breaking rocks? Mate, I really had no idea what I was doing, gonna do with myself. Um, was probably oh, towards the end of the boom, I guess, 2007. Uh, I was in the papers and everything everywhere because I had no idea. And one of my mates who I lived with in that house, he, uh, he'd been overseas and met a bird from Perth and uh, he decided he was going to move over there. And one day over a coffee, he asked me what I was doing when I got back. I said, I've got no idea. He said, come to Perth with me. And I said, righto. And I did. About two weeks later, <laughs> packed me one bag that I had to my name, jumped on a plane and uh, went to Perth after one more massive night on the cans. Oh, yeah. One one more uh, dancing session, eh? It was... There's actually a story to that night too, if you want to hear it. I'm sure I probably told you. Oh, mate. If you reckon it passed the filter test, we're, we're all easier on life of mine, mate. It might. So anyway, two of the blokes had to go to work that day. One of them was coming over with me the next day. He was still staying to work. And so him and that one mate went to work and me and another bloke went to the Coogee Bay Hotel and got on the cans. Oh, the bay, mate. Oh, geez, many a good night at the old bay. Many a, many a schooner and 50 bucks in the pokes at that bloody joint. They made some money off me. <laughs> mate, uh, so we had a, quite a session on the cans about 11 o'clock. Our flight was at six the next morning. I was sensible enough to wrap it up. And the boys had come and seen us. They'd driven out and said g'day to us at the pub that Arvo at about four or five o'clock or something. And anyway, they left. And at 11 o'clock, I wrapped it up and started walking home. So I walk up the hill, get back to the place and go, go in the front door. The door was never locked, always open. Anyway, so I grabbed the door handle and it's locked. I'm like, fuck's going on here? This is a bit weird. Anyway, I walk around the back to the back of the house, <clears throat> open the door, go in, have a leak because it took me about 15 minutes to get home. Anyway, I go back into my little sunroom and I'm sitting down, chucking all my clothes into my bag because I was obviously very prepared and packed. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, I'm like, Jesus, my cock's burning. <laughs> I mean, God, does a clap come on this quick? Like, what the fuck's happening here? <laughs> anyway, I went and jumped in the shower, put a bit of cold water on it. Anyway, went back in, packed me bag. Anyway, next thing I you know, I'm falling asleep. I'm <laughs> getting woken up. It's me, mate. Hey, Tunzi, we've got to go. We've got to go. I'm like, oh, you know, drama. So I roll over. I go, mate, fuck. wouldn't believe what happened last night when I got home. One day, fucking, when I was packing my bag, my dick just started burning and he's pissed himself last. Absolutely wet himself, run out of the room and grabbed my other mate that he was working with and go, brings him back in and goes, Tansy, tell him the story, tell him the story. So I told him, I said, yeah, fucking come home, had a leak, my dick started burning. They're pissing themselves laughing. What they'd done, they'd left us at the Coogee Bay Hotel, come back up to the house, empty a can of capsicum spray on the door handle when I'd come home, I'd rub capsicum spray all over me. 
that is not what I was expecting. <laughs> I told that, I told that story at his wedding too in the speech. He loved it. Oh, that, <laughs> oh, mate, that is bloody hilarious. Oh, <laughs> oh, God, right up. I got, I got me shit together. But hopefully, we, we shouldn't get a formal complaint about that one. But uh, oh, anyway, so once your buddy gathered your uh, your one port and your uh, irritated penis mate and headed over to headed over to Western Australia. Uh, where'd you where'd you head to first, brother? Yeah, so it recovered pretty quick. Actually, there was no long term damage. I uh, got over there and um, obviously it was just applying for stuff and uh, just so happened that uh, my mate's missus's uh, brother in law was a foreman. And uh, he got me the gig like everyone else, not watching out too, you know. Exactly. And uh, packed the bags, jumped on the old Qantas flight to Kalgoorlie, ended up in Cambowder and uh, was in and out of Cambowder for two years every second week. Yeah, right. What, uh, what, what mine were you at, Turnsy? Yeah, uh, Lee Frankie kicked it off at. Yeah, right. Well, so, so was that like bloody entry-level entry trucky were you straight up? Started off as a trucky, so... I was probably pretty fortunate with my timing. Uh, they kicked off their – there was another little mine there called Winner. Um, there was oh, probably a K away. Uh, we had a little five-man crew. I got put on that. And, uh, yeah, was on, on the trucks for a little bit. And uh, probably about six months in, get to work one, flying to work on night shift. And they're like, all oh, right, eh? Charge up because we had – just a truckie, service crew charge up, bogger, jumbo, shift boss. I go, right, we had a new shift boss. He goes, oh, our service crew charge up, bloke's broken his collarbone. Who's charging? They just all point at me. I'd never even seen anyone charge before. <laughs> the way I went. Jumbo operator had to paint the numbers up on the face and everything for me. <laughs> Get into it, Turnsy. Oh, that's bloody gold. Did, did the cut actually bloody come out? Yeah, come out. <laughs> the jumbo operator helped me out, you know. So I wasn't chucked too much in the in the deep end, but uh, from then on, did that. He came back and yeah, just cruised along doing that for a while, and then then the bogger operator hurt his neck, so they chucked me on that for a little bit. <laughs> that's all within twelve months. <laughs> so yeah, but that's funny. Or good things just seem to come your way, Turnsy, because uh, you know you you everyone bloody loves you. You you're not a you're not a fucking dickhead. So and and they're just like yeah, just bloody just bloody chuck Turnsy on it. Why not get him into it? I don't know. Pe- people might bloody say different. Uh, oh, I'm, oh, you know, I'm your biggest fan. I reckon Turnsy. Oh, mate, stop it. Stop with the flattery. Oh, you know, I'm just trying to bloody draw you back to come to WA. Oh, but yeah, any, anyway, so after the Liam Frankie days, mate, when'd you, when'd you venture up to the uh, up the way of the, the Great Sandy Desert, I think it is, uh, up the way of Marble Bar, namely uh, the infamous uh, underground mine of Telfer? So, yeah, mate, I was there for, was it Liam Frankie, for probably just under two years, Um then to go into a bit, I probably got a bit homesick and um, we were talking about the cops earlier, so a bloke I worked with in the cops uh, decided he wanted to commit suicide. So yep, jeez. He uh, did that. I came back for his funeral, hung out with the boys again, had a heap of fun, then I came back the next swing and I was like, oh, fuck it, I'm going to move back to Sydney. So as soon as I did that, probably back here for a couple of weeks and I was like, what did I do that for? Yeah. So... Uh, Tried looking to head back over, uh, nothing come my way, and then I scored the gig at Telfer probably uh, three months, three or four months later. Yeah, right. So, what would you bloody start on the start on the bogger there? What'd you would you get up to there? Nah, mate. I took took the odd steps back and back on a truck again. Oh, were you down the bloody the infamous haulage drive? Were you? Nah, mate. It was when we were doing the uh, the uh, vent rise. I can't even remember what it was called. Tucked around the back there. Jesus, I can't remember. I can't believe I've forgotten what it was called. 480 Vent Rise, I think it was. Yeah, we right. used to go into the five, the 525, chuck a left, and then you'd go down. Yeah, um, pass, yeah. 
three two cross cross cut three two five that used to go all the way through, and then you'd loop around the back and come out just up above where the uh, crib room is. You know where you used to go through those gates. Yeah. Go through those gates and then the vent four ninety vent rolls. I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. So I was taking all the uh, raised board dirt up to the surface because they uh, weren't chucking it, chucking it into the crusher. Yeah. So I did that. Again, probably did that for a little while, probably only a couple of months. Then I uh, went up to the M50 and I uh, was doing a bit of well, trucking from the M50 and service crew. Then uh, the shift boss at the time, old Henry, he was a champion. He uh, said, oh, I want you to start loading yourself. So did a bit of bogging and loaded myself, and that's probably the best job I've ever had in the mines, really. Yeah. Going to work, jump in the bogger, load my truck, drive up. Like very self-sufficient. Yep. He'd just uh, come and see me twice a shift, stick his thumbs up. I'd stick my thumb up at him, and away we'd go. Yeah, bloody nice. That that M50, that was all um, that was all single boom shit. Pretty bloody narrow up there, wasn't it? Yeah. <clears throat> so where we were then, all the development had already been done. They were just doing production drilling and um, charging. Yeah. So there was no there was no real jumbo work going on at that that stage. Every so often they'd have do a bit of um, working some mesh and bolts and that, but that was the extent of it. And then they started after that, started developing again. So yeah, that was nice a few that. years later, though. Yeah, right. So uh, look, even though we're being mine specific here, there's that many people that have worked at Bloody Telfer that people know what we're actually talking about. So when did you you then venture down to the infamous production bogging at the uh down the bottom of the cave eventually, didn't you, Turnsey? Yes, I did, mate. So that would have been probably oh geez. Trying to think. Maybe maybe I was up the M fifty for twelve months and then went up. Yeah, it was probably about that. Went down to the cave and was bogging away there, mate. Oh. In and out, in and out. Oh, geez, there's not much, buddy. There's not much excitement, bloody. It's pretty monotonous bogging back and forth, straight into all parts. Look, I don't even know if I'd bloody. I reckon I'd take a driving a truck over production bogging into a, into an all pass. It's that bloody boring. 125 buckets for 2,000 tonne of shift. That was a, that was the target, mate. Yeah. That was the going rate. Oh. Yeah, buddy, didn't didn't it take a while? There was it was funny up there with mind control. You'd have because uh, everyone would be listening to how many buckets everyone's calling in on mind control, and you'd have you'd have some uh, a couple of little birdies up there. You'd say that'd be uh, ringing up and saying, "Oh yeah, just chuck it, just chuck another ten in for me, mate." Yeah, just while while you're at it. Uh, anyway, that one, yeah, possibly possibly happened. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, right. So anyway, enough of the bogging, mate. Now take us into when uh, you sort of wanted to go down the safety and training route. How did you got into it, mate? Oh, mate, it probably actually went back to me Lane Frankie days, to be honest. So early on in the piece, you had the old, uh, the old annual review and uh, the foreman at the time goes, mate, I think we're wasting your skills here. I was a bit offended to start with. I thought, fucking, I must be shit. <laughs> <laughs> he wants to, wants to get me out of here already. But then uh, he explained himself and goes, mate, I think you'd, you'd be better for us elsewhere, you know. So he was kind of pushing me down that way. Um, took four or five years for me to end up doing it. But um, that was probably the, what got in the back of my head to start with. Oh, Kev Harding. Yeah, right. So did um did you hit them or did you hit Burncut up to get off the tools or did they actually uh approach you to go for the role of safety and training? Nah, mate, I hit them up. And uh so at the time I'd I'd left and then uh hit them up and they said, Yeah, mate, well, it could be six months, so I ended up Get, they said, you're going to go to Cosmos. Like, Righto. So I went to Cosmos, did a week, inductions and all that stuff, and did a few days underground there, then went home from just did a week to start with and flew home, come in for my second swing, did night shift. On the last night shift, they called me in and said, oh, mate, you got a got a safety job, you're going back to Telfer. I was uh, pretty happy. So 
Mate, sounding like I have been kissed on the dick a bit here. I uh, <laughs> started off as a truckie, ended up doing some bogging in 12 months, then went to Telfer, ended up on a bogger pretty quick again, and then got told it was going to be six months, and then it was two weeks. So yeah. that, uh, you could be right there. Oh, you got to be in it to win a butt turns. He has, oh, you know, Wayne Gretzky's famous saying, something like this, 99% of shots you don't take won't go in. Yep. If that makes That's sense. it. Yeah. I think it was 100% of shots you don't take won't go in. No, nah, I reckon, no, I'm going with 99 because you could bloody pass it to someone not actually shooting for a goal and it goes in the goal. So that would take account the 1%. Anyway, so how would you go with the transition, Turnsy? So because you, cause you were on crew with the boys and everything, and then you had to go into safety and training and I guess enforce the enforce the safety culture. How'd you go with the transition? I had a yarn about about it in his episode, and because he was a he was a jump operator on the crew, and he had to then transition to shift supervisor on the same crew. Did you have? How'd you find it, mate? Mate, I probably it probably wasn't too bad, um, in the sense that I knew a lot of the blokes that were there, so I probably already had a a, a level of trust. Um. And especially on the, I used to be on A crew, so especially with the A crew boys, I knew bloody eighty percent of them. Um, and then the other crews, uh, was I knew a few of them, so it probably was a bit better that they actually knew who I was. Um, and I guess it's just the way you deal with people, really. If you go in there and act like a dickhead, then people think you're a dickhead, don't they? So, yep. Um, oh, yeah, it was. Guess there was probably some difficulties, but I didn't find it um, too hard as such. I guess maybe with supervising and that, it's a little bit different because they um, they're more down there all twelve hours a day, you know, or ten hours, eight hours, depending on who the shift boss is. But yeah, um, yeah I didn't have any real real dramas. Um, it was reasonably smooth, I guess you could say. And, and then I guess a lot a lot of the initial training you do was with newer blokes anyway, so um, uh, they're, they're coming in fresh, so they're always a bit nicer to you because they've got no friends on site, so they'll latch on to whoever they oh. can. <laughs> what, are you, what are you talking about, bloody anyone in particular there, Turnsy? <laughs> Not at all, mate. Ah, oh, jeez. Anyway, anyway, a bit of a background story where I'm going to lead with this. Uh when I was doing my inductions at the side of Matt at the moment, I was, you know what it's like on induction. Sometimes you're waiting to get down the hole for your familiarisation and everything. So I was up there in the safety department and I said to him, I said, look, can I give you his hand with anything? And so I was, um, I was uh, actually entering the hazard reports into INX. <laughs> that would have been exciting, mate. Oh, it was bloody absolutely riveting, mate. But this is this is what I mean. Like, I I, until I went and did that, and no one, I don't think any, not many people actually fully appreciate the bloody bullshit, the shit, no, I wouldn't say bullshit, but just shit data entry that the safety training guys have to go through because a lot of safety training guys, and this would have been you as well, were like, passion to get into the role was like yeah i'm going to get off the tools i'm going to get up there so i can help train everyone up and bloody pass on the knowledge that i've acquired but you bloody get that bogged down in the just the monotonous data entry of all this stuff trying to keep INX updated to conform to the site standards and add in all the uh count the workplace inspections and add in the hazard reports that everyone puts in and, and look people just don't I just don't think people realise the how bloody time consuming it is, and like the old safety train is far from a bloody retirement job. And and look, I didn't, as I said, I don't, I didn't fully appreciate it until I had to do it with my own fucking hands. Unfortunately, yeah, mate. I, I think yeah, I don't think I had any idea really how much admin sort of stuff there was. It's uh, when you're going on about how draining it is. It's it's definitely a different kind of not physically tired at the end of the day, just mentally drained from uh, just staring at computers all day, talking to people, dealing with whatever pops up and that. And it made it a busy site like Telfor was, man. It was long days, you know, we were getting we were getting to work at like 
20 past four in the morning and not getting home till 6, 6.30. So mm. massive long days. Yeah, I know. And it's, look, it's bloody, when, you, when you've got that much of a backlog of frigging incident reports and data entry to do, like you don't, you don't stop. And I've seen like, safety guys, they're just, flat stick all day look there's some bloody some that probably sit in the crib room, crib room for an hour but then again there's some people in every role at bloody various sites that uh sit in the crib room for an hour but um as i said the the, the representation of safety people is probably very false because it's uh oh it's a bloody flat out job it's the shitloads to it yeah, it's probably one of my biggest gripes with the whole safety thing because a lot of it's uh company generated you know they don't have to do it for legislation it's because companies want to go above and beyond and and show how good they are and they create all this work for themselves and in the long run i think um i think i think safety will change a lot in the next five to ten years to be honest um they'll cut out a lot of this bureaucracy you're and, about to know uh, be... another b word then weren't you <laughs> no, no not at all <laughs> bureaucracy um and uh, I think it'll be better for everyone, to be honest. I think they'll realise, and look, other, I, I do a fair bit of reading in other, other industries and, um, and really a lot of science backs up that what, what people and companies are doing in, in, on the safety front is probably uh, counterproductive, to be honest, and not making anything any safer probably making it worse to be honest they're right and look this is leading into the i guess the whole purpose of we've got you on here turns it out now that we've got through your bloody infamous mining career um i guess the message that you're trying to get across and then what we're going to try and get across with this episode is is trying to make safety simple yeah oh look that's there's the bloody title of the episode mate making safety simple mate absolutely right so Take me down the rabbit hole turns. I reckon we've got about 40 minutes before the missus comes out and stabs me for being late for late for dinner. We're having salmon tonight, trying to get some Omega 3 into us. We're, we've got a bloody pub lunch addiction at the moment. We're just, oh, I can't be bothered cooking lunch when I'm home. So we just, we just bloody end up going to the pub every day. Oh, bloody, bloody, how, how good is a pub lunch, but I'm not, I'm not real good myself either. I, uh, I had the colonel tonight. I'm batching it. So. Oh, oh, geez, half your half your bloody luck, mate. Nice anyway. little zinger burger, mate. Oh, bloody beautiful. Anyway, enough enough of the greasy food. We'll get back to our vegetables and safety. So, mate, give us the rundown. Where do you want to start? Give us a rundown on how you want to make safety simpler whilst maintaining the same levels of safety standards. I guess you'd say. Hey, to be honest, I think it'll be safer. Um, yeah, it probably started, oh, geez, I'll say five years, but it could have been longer than that. Just, uh, and it was from when incidents happen, you know, we'll always, <laughs> you'd always sit there and the boys would just go, well, what are we going to add to the process now, you know? There's always, always adding things to try and make stuff safer and uh, never, never would even consider not, not doing anything so they'd look at it and um just i guess you could go we'll go into icam so you start with an icam right icams don't blame people fair enough no need to blame them but people are, play a big part in every incident that happens in reality oh just for just hold up there bloody for listeners will uh the icam icam's the the process that's undertaken when you have a have a serious incident it's the investigation process that they use to find out the incident uh, the the causes and uh, recommendations and all that bloody jazz that's right so yeah. they look for the root cause they look at people they look at uh bloody the environment they i can't even think of what they all stand for now oh people people environment uh engineering i think it is procedures and organisation. So they look at those five things and they try and knuckle down to the root cause by um, going through like a timeline and then saying, asking why to all the all the different uh, stages of the, the incident before, during and after. 
uh, and then from that they they reckon they come out with the root cause of why it, why it happened, and then they've got to put actions in place to stop that root cause happening. Yeah, and that's well, I guess that's why the basic terms you'll everyone notices that when you have a serious incident if they do an ICAM, whether you know they've done one or not, there's always something that comes out of it as like an, an additional control or an additional modification to a procedure. And it's all based on the fact that they have to come up with something to ensure that, attempt to ensure that this incident won't happen again. That's why it's like a bloody onion. It's just a layer of bloody procedures gets added on nonstop. Yeah, that's right. So, and it's a it's a no blame thing, which is understandable. And the reason they say that is that the people make mistakes. You can never rule out people making mistakes, so you've got to try and make uh, cover everything else to stop people making mistakes. But there's a contradiction in that in itself, in that no matter what you put in in place, people are still going to make mistakes. Um, so the way I think you've got to look at it, and the way I think that it's starting to be looked at is that they'll focus more so on people rather than than uh, anything else. So what, what businesses will have to do is now make the environment um, uh, good enough for people to excel. Um, and the way that they're currently, or, or it's not specifically mining, um, they're not doing that very well. So, and that's where the simplification of it comes into it. And I found it really hard to uh, describe for years. And then um, I, I read a book probably 12 months ago, and it was by an old uh, submarine captain in the US Navy. And as soon as I read what he said, I just went, mate, I've been looking for those words for the last five years. And, uh, we tend to, with mining being very compliance-driven, every every job has a uh, a list of ten things that you got to do. So you got to comply with all those ten things to get the job done. And he said, his the submarines are exactly the same. So when when that happens, people forget about what the actual job is or what the result they want, and they focus more on complying with the process. Um, and in doing that, he said, "People, you want people that are obedient, but mining and or any job really is, and you hear it all the time. You want people don't have ownership, and you want them to take responsibility for what they're doing." And he said, "If you have a compliance-based system, people need to be obedient, and in doing that, they can't be responsible." Because obedience and responsible don't go together. Yeah, so right. the kind of opposite say, if you want someone to be obedient, they might do those ten things. But if something goes wrong, they they won't take responsibility for it because they'll just do what they're told. Yeah, so they they did their ten things essentially. That's right. So if you want them to be obedient, fair enough, have a compliance based system. But if you want people to take responsibility, you can't have those that many steps in there. So going on to another book which sort of goes on to that and how people function at their best, there's well, things that motivate people, right? So I think, oops. Oh, you're back. You there, mate? I'm back. Yeah. Um, I think there's a probably a, a lack of motivation on some people on the mining front and I think it's to do with, uh, the environment itself, people go out there and uh, one of the worst motivators for people is money. And um, Money money and progression in your role as well, wouldn't it? That's what drives so that's, money. So that is part of it. But um, money is a bad motivator. And what are most people going to mining for? Well, well you don't go into it to bloody go away for a couple of weeks at a time, that's for sure. And over the, the times obviously dealing with inductions and that all the time of people coming in, you'd see them, everyone wanted to be there, they loved it, and they liked that for, I reckon, a period of three to six months and then they'd just dive. And to me, that was when they realised they're getting the extra money, they were just spending it just as quick anyway. Yeah. Um, 
and that's when their motivation died. They sort of got on that uh, they could get a bit bitter and then the complaining would start. And it was in a, in a three to six-month period and then they all they wanted to do was get the next job to get more money and then that became a process, an ongoing process. People wanting to stab each other in the back to get the next job, to get on the service crew, to get on the charge up to try and earn that money. And then it was just a vicious, a vicious cycle because then worse to that, they got trapped because they couldn't go back and work in the city because they'd be taking a 50 or 60 grand pay cut. And if they had got up a few levels, they're taking a 100 grand pay cut. Yeah. Um, so motivation-wise, compliance comes into that as well because, uh, as I said, money's the worst one, but there's three things that motivate people really well. Um, this is a great book called Drive, a bloke named Dan Pink. He, uh, he wrote it probably 10 years ago. And the three biggest motivators for people are autonomy, uh, mastery, wanting to be the best at what you do, and the third one's purpose. Guess what the opposite of autonomy is? Oh, en- enlighten me, Turnsy. Compliance. Yeah, right. Yep. So we're getting people there. They're coming to work. We're making them comply with all this stuff, and we're knocking out the greatest motivator for people that you can have. Oh, oh, that's a that's a bloody good punchline, Turnsy. I, I like that, mate. That, that actually... Oh. You wouldn't believe that makes actually a lot of bloody sense. So we have people come up there all ready to get into it and then we're just basically knocking them out straight away and going, oh, your first motivator money isn't really good. It's a short-term thing. And then your best motivator, we don't allow you to do it. So you're losing motivation there. And then and there are some people who I've worked with who want to be the best at what they do. And they're fine. There are blokes on mine sites everywhere that just come to work, do their job every day. They do a great job. They don't whinge. They don't complain. They get into it. And they're the ones that actually move up quick. Um, so there's, there's those blokes out there, yourself included, you know, mate. You, you came to Telfer. You knew what you wanted to do. And, mate, you did extra stuff to get there that a lot of other people wouldn't do. Oh, yeah, they bloody fucked they hated me for it too. But, look... Uh, as I said about me and Bado were talking about the other day, you just no point going in the foreman's office and having a sook and saying, I want to be on a bogger or I want to be on a jumbo because I think I deserve it. You've got to passively separate yourself from the field and that's what I did via extra days and just trying to trying to work harder than everyone else was down there, I guess. That's right. It wasn't as though you were getting put on it. You were saying, mate, I'll stay here and do extra days. On my seven days off, I'll work work an extra three. Yeah, yeah. Everyone else was going home and and drinking beers, so you you weren't stepping over people in your shift. You were staying back extra and and doing it. And mate, that's what uh, people who want to get somewhere do that. Oh, but it is it is very circumstantial. But because um, look when. I guess when I bloody made my big run for it and did all those extra days, look, I didn't have, I didn't have kids or anything. Like I was talking to the missus about it the other day. Look, if if, if fast forward to now and I was I was trying to chase a jumbo job now, um, just wouldn't well, I wouldn't be on two and one to start. I couldn't just possibly couldn't do two and one now with kids. But um, if I was, I, I definitely wouldn't be doing. Two, two extra days in a swing after being away two weeks and there's, there was probably a lot of guys there that were in that situation they're like well we've I'm not going to do extra days we've got families to see and I, I, I guess I just made I made the best of my opportunity when I was young and, and was able to do so you probably don't want to do it now oh mate oh two and two and one mate you couldn't you couldn't even pay me a million bucks a year to do to go back on two and one i don't reckon anyway anyway on to on to our bloody now now give me a bit of give me a bit of rope here so your vision of safety or where you want where you're you're hoping safety will head is actually putting more focus on engaging the people and just essentially more on the people rather than all the focus on procedures and compliance and all that. I think the other thing that they do, right, so if you look at legislation, what companies do now is as a general rule, 
so far above what legis- what legislation actually st- states that they actually, I think they personally, I think they hurt themselves. So something can happen, um, and by legislation, companies may not have done anything wrong, but they've put five other steps up above on top of what legislation is, and they've missed one of those steps. So the regulators, when they look at it, go, well, you're not even following what you said you're doing. They mightn't have broken any, gone against legislation, but they've gone against what they said they were going to do. So just because they've missed one step of that, they're saying, well, you're saying you're going to do this, but you're not even complying with that. So therefore you're negligent. But if you looked at it against legislation, they don't necessarily need to do those other steps they're doing anyway. Yeah. That's over and above what, they're required to do and that's the look that's the bloody general thing we see it's side any any time there's a serious incident or an incident of any form really there's always something added on top to try and prevent that incident from incident from happening again so turns you give us a simple example an incident's occurred normal way of going about it would be to add a piece of an add another procedure on top what's your what's your solution to that what's the what's your varying approach Look, it's going to take someone very courageous to do it because um, people aren't good at taking away things. They're good at putting them in. Um, But in reality, unless if you look at the hierarchy of controls, you know, elimination, engineering, isolation, and you get down to the bottom two, administration and PPE, the majority of stuff that's put in place now is the bottom two. So in reality, if you can't uh, eliminate it completely, or engineer it out or change something out to do it in a different way to stop it happening, don't do anything. Because an admin control, if an unless an admin control can completely stop something from happening, which it can't, because the piece of paper has never stopped anything, what's the point of having it? All you're doing is putting another another level of checking in. So we go back to that uh, submarine captain I was talking about earlier. He actually changed it. And this is is how he was out there, man. His rule was that he would never issue an order on his submarine and he was in charge of it. Yeah, right. So anything that was monitored from top down, he got rid of. So he pushed responsibility down to the people who were doing the job they were able to make that decision. And for them to make that decision, they would tell the person above them what they intended to do, why they intended to do it, and then he would say, yep, very well. Yeah, right. So I guess what we're saying is we're looking to put more account, not accountability, more responsibility on all the workers and have them essentially drive their own path each day. Jeez, whoa. Geez, that is, that is a big bloody change, Jonesy. To what we're all <coughs> look, I think, and just sorry to backtrack a bit. You said what I, I think companies are they're sort of jumping on it now. You'll hear things like the golden rules, critical risk rules. Yeah, um, critical what they call controls. them at Telfer when we oh, what was that pretty critical controls, wasn't it? The, critical controls, yeah. So rules. this is <clears throat> this is a bit out there, right? And this is if I had my way, this is what I would do. Critical controls, have, there was, I don't know, there was 10 or 12 yeah, like, on it. Yeah, critical controls are just essentially the controls that prevent you getting killed. Like That's right. Don't work work under unsupported ground, stuff with explosives, yeah. um, people plan interaction. They're your rules, right? Yeah. They're, they're the 10 rules. They're the only rules you have. Yep. Yeah. And go, you break those rules, you're sacked. You have standards to say um, this is what we want stuff to look like. I don't care how you do it; just don't break these rules. Oh, geez, that'll rustle up some feathers, turns It sounds sounds bloody good to me. Because in reality, that's all you want. If they're the things that are going to kill you, don't do them things. Still get the job done, but do it because every everyone does jobs differently. No one's exactly the same. So what that does, it pushes the responsibility down to the people doing it, but it also increases a level of competency for the people doing it. So you focus more on the competency and more on 
on clarity on explaining to people what you want done. So you focus on those two things, they take responsibility for it, everyone wins. Yeah, right. I guess, I guess you've still, you've still got to enforce the, the standards on the way everything's got to look like, um, whether that's – I guess it's not a procedure, it's a standard. So you've got to say you've still got to enforce your 300 mil minimum mesh overlap or whatever the site standard is. So so employing this, Turnsy, do you reckon do you reckon it's going to stop all the the little little pain in the ass incidents that, that always get raised, the first aid injuries and stuff? <clears throat> I don't necessarily – I think it would stop. Because in reality, a lot of the incidents that we have now aren't from those big things. They're from smaller shit where people, I don't know, trip over, hurt their knee, cut their hand up or something like that, you know. Like um, trying to think of big ones that we had a bloke fall off the front of a truck, you know. Like that's not really got anything to do with those big critical risks that we face. But he got still got hurt pretty bad, um, and so I think what it does that getting the responsibility also, if you get that right, people are more engaged in what they're doing. So they're thinking about work, not going home and what they're going to eat or the blue they had with their missus, or they're actually interested in being at work and they're focused on being there. So that level of engagement. Um, makes people more switched on as well. Yeah, yeah, I can, and I can see where this is all. I guess this stuff stemmed from because the amount of incidents and ICAMs you would have been through, and just some of them, you you would have just thought like, oh, why or how the fuck did they do that? And I guess you're just looking for you're looking for answers, and you you look for the you think of oh, we put all these procedures and rules in place, and it's and it's still not bloody working. Yeah, that's right. So. <clears throat> It's not only mining either, you know. Like there's a thing called a gallop pole, right? There's this Yankee company that does all these uh, surveys and make. Have it. What percentage of people do you think are engaged in their work? Oh, well, I reckon it'd be less than fifty. Probably, probably, probably bloody less than twenty odd. So, seventeen percent in Australia, they reckon are engaged in their work. Oh, and what do you define by engaged, Turnsey? So it means turning up at work, doing their job to a high standard. Then the numbers something like sixty-five percent that are uh, not engaged means they turn up and do the bare minimum, and then the rest basically they call them actively disengaged, which are people who go to work and actually try and do stuff to cause problems. Yeah, and it's and it's just essentially those people that do not give a fuck, and and when they're like that, the it's just toxic. It just bloody spreads through the mindset. That's exactly right. And there's people there. And you you said it earlier. You said dog fuckers. You know, so um, it's a pretty common term throughout the mining industry, and everyone knows what fucking the dog is. Yeah. Uh, but it, the other thing to that is that that's actually a learned habit. So people people actually like doing a good job and being uh, rewarded as in getting a pat on the back for doing a good job. It's actually we're inbuilt to want to do a good job. Being a dog fucker is a learned habit. Yeah, um, right. And that's learned from a young age. Now, everything sort of starts when you're a kid and then goes on to how you act throughout life, you know. So not – not necessarily they only become a dog fucker when they're at work. They could have been one beforehand, but um, mining is, exacerbates it, I guess. I guess the environment on the mine side exacerbates a lot of um, bad things for people just due to the, due to the uh, isolation of it and, and being away from friends and family and, and stuff like that. Oh, and it's, it's a bloody tough gig at the start. Like, it's all exciting, you, but when you, you get that, truck position it's exciting at the start but then when you want to move up to service crew oh, i suppose it's not it's not that bad but it's then you got all these service crew guys fighting for one charge up position and one charge up bloke bloody uh 
then you got the charge-up guys fighting for one bogger position. Oh, and even worse for the jumbo. And it's look when you it's so easy to drop the lip because it, it is an emotional roller coaster. And and when you do drop the lip, it's so fucking hard to turn it around. Because and look, I've dropped it, and it's just the worst. It's just the worst feeling ever. And you just don't want to. You just don't want to be there. I've been there too. Yeah, and it's and it's just frigging hard, and it's it's a tough gig, and anyone that is going through that out there, waiting, trying to get a get a bloody promotion, and and things aren't going your way. I guess the I guess the message is just bloody hang in there, and try and yeah, don't don't let that attitude get the better of you, because as I said, once you get in that state, it's so hard to turn around. I fully understand, yes, yeah, understand how difficult it is, but just you just got to try and find a way to rise above it. So, mate, hundred percent. Um, I think a big thing, and I think it'll happen, is that companies um, they'll they'll really focus on people, you know, and they'll they'll give people the opportunity to to uh, teach them about how um, put it simply to feel better about themselves, really, because that's what it is, mate. Oh, and I was there, and I was there, buddy, seven eight years ago, from and probably more so even back to my time in the cops to when I started mine. I had a massive turnaround in in um, in how I think about myself and how I think about life, really. Um, and it's just through, well, I guess, educating myself. Well, I was probably fortunate enough to realise that I had had some dramas and I wanted to fucking sort them out um, and obviously met a few people who helped out on that path. Um, but... and. And as I said, mining exacerbates everything, you know, like going into the mental health thing. Like that's a that's a, not only a big issue on mine sites, but again, it's exacerbated when you're out there um, because of the environment, because you're away from family and friends and that. And that just adds to it. But if and the other thing is, people don't know how to how to uh, get out of it, get out of that rut, you know. And I think people um, companies will start taking responsibility in, in helping their employees do that. Yep. And, yeah, and, and God, any, I don't know, as I said, I don't know what the solution is, but any any help for them would be great because I've just seen so many people in that situation. And, look, sometimes the, sometimes the only way to get out of the rut is to, unfortunately, go get a, get another job and have a fresh start. You don't feel like you're getting anywhere at a site. And, yeah, un- unfortunately, that's the only way to turn it around for some people, which is um, sad to say. Yeah. I, I think we'll go back. I, I, I think companies will look at educating people on not so much on the actual work they're doing, but uh, just on, on life in general because it's in that company's best interest to have people going to work functioning at their best because they perform better. And, again, another little quote I read in a book, I can't remember what it was, um, Whoever wrote it said, you know, it, it may not be your fault that people are the way, but once you employ them, it's your responsibility. Yeah, right. So yeah. going back to that responsibility that I was talking about and shifting it down on the people doing the job, it doesn't mean the company's not responsible for stuff. It just shifts the responsibility to a different level. So their responsibility will be ensuring that their work environment helps the people function at their best. And that's probably even harder than what they're doing now. Yeah. So it's, they're not companies aren't getting away scot free, um, but companies that can figure out how to do that, uh, mate, they're going to be in a much better off position. And and that even in turnover for numbers that are mine, as you saying, people wanting to leave because they can't see it. If you cut turn if you cut turnover out, companies will be spending millions of dollars a year on people on people churning and burning in and out of there. Their mindset. Oh, it'd be it'd be massive. It'd be and look because obviously there's a lot of people that leave because they feel like they're not getting anywhere and they're not getting promoted and um oh but just it'd be unreal to see the cost of how many how much it costs to for all these people that aren't getting promoted that are leaving but the fact that you got to get new people in to replace them over and over again and go through the induction process fit them out with everything it'd be oh it'd be massive. Because no, saying, you look oh. at not only turnover alone, but you look at hey, people calling in on flying day. I'm not coming in. How much yeah. money is lost on that? And it's not. And 
I'll, I'll go on a limb here and say the people probably aren't sick. They probably just don't want to go to work. Or they might be feeling shit. If you get people who are switched on and, and keen, mate, you, they probably save themselves a million bucks in sick leave. Oh, exactly. Like you combine sick leave, unplanned leave, churn and burn, mate, the, num- the numbers for some companies would be astronomical. And it's yeah. not for only the companies I've worked at. I've worked with a chick now who worked for BHP um, at an iron ore mine somewhere in WA, and she said const- 10 people a week wouldn't fly in. Yeah. Oh, and it's just funny. They're just playing the system. They're not even bloody accountable for it. Yeah, and it's like, oh, I'm not coming. I'm having a week off. Like, and, and that's a hard thing being away, you know. In in a city, you have a day off and you feel a bit better and you go to work, but there's not always flights. So, and some people do it on purpose. If they're flying in on a, they're flying days of Thursday and there's no flights on the weekend, they'll get a certificate for three days and and they can't come in till the Monday or Tuesday or whenever the next flight is. You know, and, um, yeah, it's look. Not everyone does that, but uh, it certainly happens. And and when you get people who aren't who aren't well, um, who aren't feeling good about themselves, mate, some of the lies that I've heard about people wanting to go home, just unbelievable. And all that is is that they don't they don't like themselves. Yeah, they're just not happy with themselves. You know. Oh yeah, and look, I just think there's so much opportunity to. For the education, and um, I'll get trying to mentor and inspire people because look, <clears throat> situation I'm in, I'm I'm probably the happiest and content I've ever been in my life. I've got an awesome family and awesome job, but when I talk to people that aren't in a similar situation, I'm I'm trying to I guess inspire them and uh, promote the way I feel. But they're probably just not receiving it because they're they're just out there. They might be in a shit time of their life. So look, there's just there's definitely a lot of room for work to be done in the, I guess it's whether it's the, there's mental health of so many degrees of uh, just trying to make, boost that morale on site. Absolutely. So back to another another book. So bloke who suffered from mental health, you know, his whole life had been medicated for 20 odd years. The uh, circumstances came out and he eventually went, you know, this is, Bullshit. What I'm doing doesn't work, and he did a lot of uh, educating himself, and he put it down to nine things that um, add up to to people having. Um, hey. So he, he, it, the book was called Lost Connections. The bloke's name was Johan Hari. So he's basically put it down to connections and on nine things that if you have those, it can cause you to look. Suffer mental health issues, and I've reading it. I looked at it and I went, you know what, mining covers probably six of six of those things straight up come from mining, and that's disconnection from people, disconnection from uh, <coughs> certain work, disconnection from bloody natural environment. Because although you're in nature, it's pretty sparse in most um, places where mines are, and it's not it's not as though you can just go down the street or Bloody, you go and sit under a tree and do whatever. You, you're in the middle of fucking nowhere. Um, and of the nine that he talked about, I went, you know what? Six of those probably relate to mining. So that's just, as you said, when you when you're in an environment or when you're not feeling good about yourself, and then you get in an environment that fucking pretty much just compounds everything. Um, and it does make it hard when when you're trying to. Uh, to talk to them it makes makes your job 10 times harder yep oh it also that all sounds good right i turns i'm approaching that point i've got to go have me salmon and uh three veg all right so there's two two things i want to ask you to finish off uh first one what's what what's the one thing you just want to change about safety tomorrow what what would you go in and go in and improve right now right eh? i would look at the way you do stuff and if you look at it and it doesn't eliminate something completely, take it out. So that's uh, that's saying instead of like in, don't add things on. If it doesn't eliminate or substitute, just don't change yeah. it. 
have 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 the courage to say this happened because a person made a mistake. Yeah. Not we need to go and change the world or we need to add. If you're adding something in for the sake of adding something in, just don't do it. Yep. That would be the big thing. And then go back and look at everything. And if it doesn't really prevent anything, I'll take it out. Yep. And that, that that's a big thing. People are, are afraid to take things out, but you, uh, I guess you don't. Um, you got to take certain risks to uh, change things um, and change things for the better. I guess there's there's no there's no reward if there's no risk. So, and in saying that, the risk is probably minimal, but the rewards would probably be bigger and far outweigh any risk that you think you're actually taking. Yep. I like that. That would be just, mate, stop adding shit in because you know what? In in the time I've been mining, how we, how things are actually done or what you actually do in a mine have barely changed, but I can tell you the amount of stuff that has been added in on top is bloody astronomical. Yeah. And he's still doing stuff the same way. Yeah. Well, I like that, Turnsy. I bloody like that. Now, the final thing. Workplace, this is what everyone asks about. Workplace inspections or SWICs or take fives. What's your view on them? Do you think they're a bloody waste of time? And and even the look as a metric that, that we're measured on, like we're always measured on, look, every person underground needs to put in at least one workplace inspection each shift. And these get counted up and bloody, they're, they're the metric that, one of the metrics that uh, the safety people get measured on. And look, because my personal opinion is like how much more valuable a hazard report is compared to a workplace inspection. You're actually identifying a hazard and they do it awesome at the side I'm at where you go through a hazard board in the shift morning meeting each shift. You, everyone says, yep, that's done. Oh, yep, we'll get on to that today. And it's so much better you get so much more done out of it whereas a bloody workplace inspection you're just essentially writing the same thing every day bloody slips trips and falls i know i know they say statistically incidents are uh, reduced when workplace inspections are the highest so you always hear them say that but yeah look watch your view turnsy chuck them in the bin not yep. worth the paper they're written on because as soon as something becomes a metric and they have to be done it becomes Null and void because people are being forced to do something. Um, and again, this probably mate, we could talk for hours. Are you, are you writing a fucking book again? <laughs> mate, I, I probably will. Really. Um, I love a good quote. Mate. That's why you say knowledgeable turnsy. It's uh, it's it's all this literature you read, isn't it? So, so in reality, why do we count them anyway? But, so getting back to it, why I don't think they're worth anything because as soon as you go and do that job, as soon as you walk out of that job site, that is not worth a piece. That's not worth anything because the job's done. So why do we sit there and count it? What does it actually prove? It proves that someone filled out a piece of paper. That's all it does. Yep. And it's, again, it's a, it's a responsibility thing. That once it's you got to comply with something, they're doing what they're told, they're being obedient, they're not being responsible for what they're doing. Yep, yep, I agree. And then that's where I was leading with that the hazard report side of things in comparison to the WPIs. The, the side I'm at at the moment, yeah, each morning meeting they bring up the hazard board, which is look, it's nothing revolutionary, but. You bring up the hazard board, see what hazards have been put in the day before, which ones are ongoing, whole crew gets involved, everyone says, has this been done, has that been done? And, yeah, if you're gonna, I just think if you're going to measure a metric, measure the amount of hazards that come in because you get a lot, a lot more benefit that comes out of putting a hazard report in rather than rather than a bloody workplace inspection. Or ask the question, I'll ask you this question, do, do we even need metrics at all, Turnsy? Oh look, I think you got to. You already got your triffer. Don't talk, start. Don't start me on that because that's not worth a pinch of shit either. Oh, yeah, well, I think we need to do a part two, Turnsy. This is going to keep going. I love it. Right, how 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 do people manipulate those to suit themselves? 
Yeah. And how, how can it be worth something when a broken leg is the exact same as a cut finger when you get one stitch and go straight back to work? Like, how can they be classified the same? You know, it's a, it's a poor way to measure something. Oh, I love, I love how much you're rustling up the feathers here, Turnsy. Love it, mate. That's, that's going straight into part two, that one, I reckon. Mate, I'll, I'll read a few more books and get some more quotes for you. Oh, I love it, mate. You, you'll be on bloody sunrise with Koshy by the, by the end of the week, I reckon, with uh, the new found fame you're going to have as the Australia's safety <laughs> guru. <laughs> Mate, it's been good fun. Oh, bloody bloody oath it has, mate. We're gonna we're gonna have to wrap it up. Based on the based on the death stairs I'm getting through the window here. Uh, God, just poor poor Miss. Everyone's gonna think she's an absolute dragon because every episode I'm uh, telling her how she's uh, she's looking at me, staring me down, telling me to hurry up. That she's a she's a bloody legend and I love her heaps. That's the sincere truth. Hopefully someone tell her you wouldn't think so the way she's looking at me at the moment. <laughs> well, I won't, I won't get you into too much more trouble, mate. Oh, you, mate. You go and enjoy your salmon and veg. I will, mate. I will. It's like I've got to get a bit of omega-3 into me. I've got, to, I've got this uh, lemon pepper seasoning, this oh, the big shaker thing of it, and uh, oh, it's just beautiful. And you've got to get the skin crispy too, mate. You've got to get the skin, crank it up at the start. Skin crispy, beautiful. <laughs> mate, I'm a lemon and chilli guy. Yeah, right. Lemon and chilli. I'll, I'll try that next time. That sounds all right. The missus can't have chilli. She's uh, bloody breastfeeding. And I had a recent bad incident with chilli and the daughter rubbed it in her eyes. So, yeah, anyway, none of that anymore. Um, right, Turnsy, I need a sign-off message. What's your, you what have you got for quote? me, brother? Oh, why, why not, mate? Why not? Give us another quote. What do you What do you got for me? Man, I'll, I must admit I haven't probably listened to them all the way through. Oh, why the bloody hell not? Just simple. 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 Yeah, that'll that'll do. Well, thanks everyone for listening to me uh, to me night in with Turnsy. Much 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 appreciated, Turnsy, and uh, I bloody miss you, mate. So over and out, everyone, and remember, keep it bloody simple. Cheers. <laughs>